because we get to see some of our college students. And thank you so much for uh, helping to lead us in worship this morning. And it's good to have my own daughter here too. <laughs> so you've probably heard it said, time is money. Or perhaps you've heard it said, time is our most valuable commodity. It's because often we, we look at time as like a possession or something that belongs to us. It's a, it's a resource, and so we guard it. We protect it. We never feel like we have enough of it. We stress out because we always feel like we're running out of it. We worry about wasting it. But what if we've been looking at time all wrong? What if God actually has given us a way to look at time that is better and way healthier? Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. We've been walking through the book of Exodus, and the Israelites have been freed from Egypt at this point. They are heading slowly towards Mount Sinai, where they're going to receive the Ten Commandments. And almost immediately after they were freed from slavery in Egypt, they started experiencing trials. Their water was bitter. They're running out of food, they think. And what we've observed over the last couple of weeks is that these trials are actually by design. God's using them to test the Israelites. But remember, the testing that's going on here is not like you would have in school, like a pass-fail grade kind of thing. The testing that's going on here has a purpose behind it. God's using the testing as a way to expose their unbelief and really ultimately strengthen their faith and, and teach them about his character. And so last week, the Israelites, they're grumbling. They're complaining about how they, they thought they had no food. Moses, they even accused Moses of bringing them out in the wilderness for the purpose of just starving them to death. And so God, I love how God reacts very compassionately. He uses their grumbling as an opportunity to really to teach them, to train them, to test them, and show them his sufficient provision on a daily basis. And so he instructs them that he's going to send bread from heaven, manna. And every single morning they would go out and they would gather just enough for that day, no more, no less. And some of them, of course, they, they don't believe, right? They, they go out and uh, they, they try to take in enough so that they've got enough for the next day or the next day and the next day. And so they save some and they have leftovers. But what happens to those leftovers? They, they get filled with worms and they, they start stinking, okay? They spoil very quickly. And also he instructs them. There's, a, there's a, another instruction here that he adds that at first glance it kind of seems strange. He says that, okay, on the sixth day, I want you to gather actually twice as much so that on the seventh day you don't have to gather anything and you, that seventh day would be a day of rest. And so once again, they'd have to trust God that the food on that seventh day would not spoil like it did every other day if they kept their leftovers. And so again, God is training them to trust him on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And so what I want to talk about today is the significance of that seventh day rest, that Sabbath day. And, and I want us to see that it's way, it's, it's way more than simply some kind of strange tradition that the Jews had. But it's really part of a major theme throughout the whole Bible that ultimately culminates in us joining God in an eternal rest, an eternal Sabbath. And my hope is that as we wrestle with this, we'll have a better understanding, a better perspective of time. And, we'll, and hopefully that's going to help us rest in Christ even more. And so let's pray, and then we'll 
we'll dive into this. Father, once again, I, I ask that you would do what only you can do. Help me speak clearly your word. Help us hear your word and believe it. Help us to know Christ better, to know your character better, and to trust in your faithfulness. Remind us that you have done everything necessary to free us from our guilt and our shame and the, the power of sin in our lives, that you have done everything necessary and you even grant us the faith to believe. I pray that you would strengthen that faith through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is where we're going. This is what you're going to see in the, in the text. In verses 22 to 26, you're going to see a description of the preparation of the first Sabbath. And then in verses 27 to 30, you're going to see their unbelieving hearts again, the Israelites. And then finally in verses 31 to 36, you're going to see God instructing them on how to remember this manna from heaven uh, in generations to come. So pick up with me in verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And so like an omer, think of like a loaf, enough for a day for you to be able to eat. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will, bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will, find, you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out and they gathered, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? And again, I think here God's speaking to Moses, but he's really speaking through Moses. Moses is just the middleman. He's speaking about the Israelites or to the Israelites here. Verse 29, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Sounds really good right now. <laughs> Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And, the, and Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. And the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And then in parentheses, an omer is the, is the tenth part of an ephah, which I think is around a butchel. And so I, I love the little details that they give there just to kind of remind you that, okay, this really happened. Okay, this is not some kind of fable. I also think it's significant at the end that he has them put uh, some of this manna in a jar. And later on we find out, like in, in the book of Hebrews, it lists, okay, this is 
what they put in the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, in the Ark of the Covenant, they had three things. They had the tablets of the Ten Commandments that the Ten Commandments were written on. They had Aaron's staff, and then they had this jar of manna. So it shows you how significant this is in the life of Israel. All right, so this is where we're going. If you're taking notes, these are the, the, the four main points that I'm going to be hitting on. The practice of the Sabbath, the purpose of the Sabbath, the pattern of the Sabbath, and the pinnacle of the Sabbath. And yes, like all good Baptist pastors, I alliterated this time. All right, so let's start with the practice of the Sabbath. Now, the text doesn't give us a whole lot here, but there are a few clues uh, about what they did. We read here that they had to gather extra manna on the sixth day to prepare for the Sabbath. And so there was some preparation that went into it uh, because there was no gathering on the seventh day. And after some of the Israelites tried to gather on the Sabbath, God just tells them, look, you need to stay put, stay in your tent, stay home. And that's what they did. And so we see that. Now, the practice of the Sabbath would actually develop over time. We get a little bit more of a clue what it looks like in the Ten Commandments. So in Exodus chapter 20, also later on in Exodus chapter 31 and 35, we see the importance of keeping the Sabbath. It's actually connected to the death penalty. But it would, for many, many, many generations, it would continue to develop until by the time you come to the New Testament, the Pharisees had 39 different categories of different type of works that had to be they, they were prohibited on the Sabbath day. There was instructions on everything from how much you could carry, how far you could carry it, uh, what you could write or erase or not write or erase, needlework. T today, Orthodox Jews, they still celebrate the Sabbath. And it, maybe you didn't know this, but the Sabbath is, is not actually on Sunday. Okay, The Sabbath is from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday night. And so if you're in Jerusalem... On Friday afternoon, right before the Sabbath starts, it's uh, bustle. I mean, the, the markets are, are bustling with people, frantic, trying to prepare for the Sabbath, trying to gather enough food for the next 24 hours, and then about a half hour before sundown. And it changes throughout the year. They actually have spreadsheets. You can go online and look at what time the Sabbath starts, depending on what time zone you're in. But a half hour before, if you're in Jerusalem, a half hour before the Sabbath, there will be men that are running through the market with trumpets, giving you a warning that there's 30 minutes left, and then 20 minutes left, and then 10 minutes left. And then when the Sabbath starts, if you're in Jerusalem, you'll hear sirens, kind of like we hear sirens when there's a tornado, declaring that the Sabbath has begun. And if you walk through the streets of Jerusalem during those Sabbath hours, it's like a ghost town. All the, almost all the restaurants and the stores are shut down. The, the public transportation stops. If you, if you walk around the city, you might hear in people's homes them singing these Sabbath hymns in Hebrew. Many of the Orthodox Jews will start their Sabbath at the synagogue. They'll worship together, and then they'll go home for a, a family meal together, where, and this meal is filled with rituals and readings and songs where they're remembering why they practice, practice the Sabbath and why it's a, a delight to them. Which brings us to our second point, the, the purpose of the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath, the word Sabbath in Hebrew is Shabbat, which literally just means to stop, to cease. In our text today, we see a few clues of the purpose of the Sabbath. In verse 23, we read, Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Now, a more literal translation of that is just simply, Tomorrow is a day of Sabbath, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. But the ESV translators decided to translate the word Shabbat there as a day of solemn rest because they're trying to emphasize 
the, the seriousness of this day. It's a holy day. And so Sabbath, that means that it's not just a day that they do nothing. It's not a day that you just rest, like lay around and be lazy. It's a day that is meant to be, to help us refocus or help them refocus on the holy. It's a day that, to be fully dedicated to the Lord. It's a day that was meant for the Israelites to remember that time is not something that belongs to them, but it belongs to the Lord. It's kind of like money, right? Where um, all of the money that we have in our bank accounts is really not ours. It belongs to the Lord's. We're, Lord, we're, we're just stewards of it, okay? So that's how they're supposed to look at time. Uh, the Sabbath was a rhythm that God put in place for them to really recalibrate their, their minds and their hearts around him, surrendering to his lordship. And take a look at two passages. The first passage I want us to take a look at is in Exodus chapter 20. So this is the Ten Commandments. So go ahead and Exodus chapter 20, pages to your right. And this is the fourth commandment of the Ten that there are more words dedicated to the description of this commandment. Chapter 20, 8 through 11, this is what we read. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days. Son, male servant or your female servant or your or the sojourner who is with you are within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So several things that I want to point out in this text. Once again, we see that the Sabbath is meant to be a holy day in which no work is done, not by you, not by anybody in your family. Okay, Not your kids, not your not your servants, not even your animals are to work. Everybody's supposed to rest. Even if you have a sojourner, somebody visiting from out of town, if they're with you, they celebrate the Sabbath with you. In verse 11, we see that Sabbath here is grounded in six days in the sea and everything that rested on the day. And so one of the purposes of the Sabbath is to imitate God who worked for six days and then rested on the seventh day. Why would God have to rest? It's not like God gets tired. Okay? He's, he's not like, okay, I need to take a nap now. I did a lot of work. That wasn't the purpose. So what was the purpose of God resting on the seventh day? The purpose was to invite us to enter into his restful creation. That was the Garden of Eden, right? It was a place of ultimate rest. He was inviting his creation to enjoy the joy of his rest. That was the purpose of it. And let me, let me show you that in a couple different ways. Okay, so he says, Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. That's what the, the text says in Exodus 20. He blessed the Sabbath day. Now it's interesting that in the creation narrative, there are only three things that God blesses. Okay, and they're similar. The first one is on day five where... God has just created the fish and everything living, uh, all the living creatures that are moving and swarming in the waters, and he creates the birds in the sky. And he says this in verse 22. He says, And God blessed them, saying, 
Be fruitful and multiply, and I will fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Okay, that's the first place where we see God blessing something in the creation story. The second place is very similar. After he creates human, humans in his image, he says to them, God blessed them, and he said to them what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then the third time he has a blessing is for the Sabbath day. And so many scholars believe that this really implies that the Sabbath day was meant to be looked at as something that would multiply, that was something that would be fruitful and multiply, that it's pointing to this eternal Sabbath, that, he, that he's calling us to, to rest in him for all of eternity. And it's interesting, and in the, in the scholars point this out, if you look at the first six days of creation, after every one of the descriptions of, of the days, he ends it with, there was morning and there was evening, the first day, or the second day. There, there's a beginning and an end, but you come to the seventh day, there's no beginning and end. There, there, there's no indication of, there's no morning, there's no evening. It's meant to point to this eternal rest, an eternal garden of Eden. And this is what all of time is leading up to. The next passage I want you to take a look at, and I think this really drives the same point home. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Okay, so turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. So turn to the right so you get to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, what we have is a restatement of the Ten Commandments. And we get a few more details of the purpose of the Sabbath here. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 12, is where I'm going to pick up. We read this, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Okay, so you've heard all that before. Uh, that your male servants and your female servants may rest as well as you. Now, listen to how he grounds it, though. doesn't ground it in creation. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So I, what I want you to notice about this text is that instead of grounding the Sabbath in the creation story, he grounds it with the... With in the, in the Israelites remembering that God freed them from slavery in Egypt. And so the Sabbath is meant, one of the purposes of the Sabbath, it's meant to be a reminder and a celebration of God releasing us from work and bringing us into the promised land where we can rest. Now I think this purpose is made even more clear as we go to our third point, which is the pattern of the Sabbath. The pattern of the Sabbath. Let me start by talking about the significance of the number seven. And I, I really only have time to scratch the surface. Uh, if you really want to dig into this a little bit deeper, and a lot of the information that I've got from this comes from, uh, you've heard of like the Bible Project. They have all those cool videos. They also have a podcast. They, there are 14 different podcasts that they've dedicated in this series on just seventh-day rest. And it is so cool. 
But let me, let me just give you a hint of what there is in the, when we're talking about the significance of the seven. So I've talked about this before, that the number seven in the Bible uh, means completeness, right? But perhaps you did not know this, that the Hebrew word for seven, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce, and the word that we translate into the word complete or full or satisfied, they look almost identical. Let, let me show you on the screen. So the consonants are exactly the same. You move a few dots around, a few lines around, and, and they're almost the same word. But that wordplay gets used all throughout Scripture. The number seven appears everywhere in Scripture. Uh, seven days of creation, of course. Noah, he brought seven pairs of clean animals into the ark. In the law, it states that an animal has to be at least seven days old before you're able to sacrifice it. In the tabernacle, there were seven stems on the lampstand. Uh, and a leper had to be bathed in the Jordan River seven times to be considered completely clean. As they're entering into the promised land, a land that would give them a taste of what the Garden of Eden was supposed to be like, a taste of heaven, right? A place flowing with milk and honey. As they're entering in, what do they face first? They face Jericho, okay? And what do they do at Jericho? God doesn't just say attack. He says, I want you to march around Jericho for seven days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to march around seven times. And then seven priests would blow seven horns and the walls would fall down. That's how they entered into the promised land, right? Uh, go to the prophets. Jeremiah prophesizes 70 years of captivity. Daniel, 70 weeks. Uh, in the New Testament, there's seven signs and seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. There's seven parables in Matthew 13. There's seven woes in Matthew 23. Revelation is filled with way more sevens than I can ever list in this time. I mean, sevens are everywhere in the Bible. And this is what's most significant. The heartbeat of the Jewish calendar is the number seven. The heartbeat of the Jewish calendar is number seven. And I want you, I want you to see how all these sevens really point to this unending seventh-day eternal Sabbath rest. So seven days in a week, right? We still do that. <laughs> we still have that. So and they culminate in the seventh day Sabbath rest for the Jews. A, a weekly rhythm of six days of work and one day of rest. Also, there were, in the Jewish calendar, there were seven festivals throughout the year that they would celebrate God's redemptive work and learn about God's character. And they really, they help the Israelites build into their lives an expectation that God is moving all of human time towards this eternal Sabbath rest. So seven days in a week, seven festivals each year, and then every seven years, they would celebrate what's called the year of release or the Sabbath year. And on the year of release, they would um, release everybody's debts, okay? All debts are forgiven. All uh, slaves are released. Their farmland would also get to rest. And so for a full year, they were not allowed to plant any seeds or, or prune any vines because they had to trust that the Lord would provide for them during that year, that the Lord would produce enough food through the land that, that they would survive on. And during that year of release, or that Sabbath year, there's a big emphasis, and you can go to Deuteronomy 15 and see this, but there was a big emphasis on making sure that the poor in the land were provided for, that there'd be nobody that would be in need. And so every seven days, you got the Sabbath. Seven times a year, we've got these feasts or these festivals. 
Every seventh year was the year of release or, or the year of Sabbath. And then after seven of those year of releases, and so seven times seven is 49 years, on the seventh month, the tenth day of the seventh month, which is the Day of Atonement, they would blow a ram's horn and declare that the year of Jubilee, which would be the 50th year. And the year of Jubilee was much like the year of release, but it was just on steroids. Okay, this is like radical year of release. And again, all the slaves are released, the debts are forgiven, prisoners are set free, the land rests again. And on top of all that, all the property in Israel is returned to the original owners. And so uh, it was basically there's a, a big reset in Israel. And so all of you went back to the land that was originally assigned to you when you came into the promised land, when your family came into the promised land. And there's all sorts of rules and regulations on, on how that's supposed to work in, in the Old Testament. And so it was a, a year of celebration, of release, of rest, of restoration, where, where God would provide all of their need, they forgive all their debts, uh, remind them really of what the Garden of Eden was supposed to be like. And so here's the pattern, one more time. Okay, so you got seven days in a week. You got seven festivals in a year. You got, of course, the Sabbath on every seventh day. And then you got seven festivals within the year. Every seven years, you've got this year of release. And then every seventh uh, year of release, every 50 years, you've got the celebration of the year of Jubilee. Which brings us to the pinnacle of the Sabbath, our fourth point. When Jesus came and he starts his public ministry, and you can go to Luke chapter 4 to, to see this if you want to. The first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue in his hometown, which is like this little, think LJ, right? It's in the middle of nowhere. But he goes to the synagogue and on the Sabbath day, this is what he says. This is Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and it was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant and he sits down and the eyes of the, of the whole synagogue were fixed on him. And then he, he says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And again, he drops the mic, right? Jesus, in his first public statement, introduces himself with jubilee language. He proclaims liberty to release the captives, liberty to the oppressed, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And then what does he do in his public ministry for the next three years? He lives out the jubilee year. What does he do? He forgives sin debts. He feeds the poor with bread provided from heaven. He heals and releases people from, from sin and, and death and sickness, the bondage. He sacrifices ultimately his own body and blood to provide salvation for his people so that we would be able to enter into his rest for all of eternity. 
So when we read Matthew chapter 12, at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 12, you've got the story of Jesus' disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, they call Jesus out on this. And they question him. And Jesus responds by saying what? The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, often we read that and we just simply think, okay, Jesus is just saying, okay, I'm not going to play your games. I'm not going to play your legalistic games. But man, he is saying something way more significant than that. He's declaring something much greater. He's declaring that, look, I am the ultimate Sabbath, the ultimate rest. He's saying that the Sabbath that you've been celebrating for years and years and years and years, it was pointing to me all along. And this is why when Jesus declares in Matthew chapter 11, so right before he says, I am the Lord of the, Lord of the Sabbath, and we read this earlier today. In chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, you know the verse well. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why does he say that? Because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's our Jesus. That's our Christ. That's our Messiah. And so let me close with this. The Sabbath has been celebrated now for like over 3,000 years. It is literally the longest uh, continued tradition, religious tradition in the world. The Jews are still celebrating it today. And when it's been understood correctly by them, it's a celebration that reminds them of God's faithful provision. It's a declaration that time doesn't belong to them, but to the Lord. Now, we don't celebrate the Sabbath like they do. Um, anymore. And there's a reason for that, right? And the the guys in the Gospel Project actually gave me this illustration. I I like it a lot. It's kind of like the Sabbath day that has been celebrated for these 3,000 years. It's kind of like a lamp that you turn on in your house. And it it lights up the room. It shows you the truth. It it helps you. It, it, It serves you well. But when the sun comes up, you turn the lamp off because you no longer need it. Because you have a much greater and more glorious light in your life now. When Christ came, he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This is what the Sabbath is pointing to. Rest in me. And so this weekly Sabbath that they celebrated, yeah, it was a a declaration that, okay, time doesn't belong to me, but it was also an anticipation of the ultimate eternal Sabbath. And so in Christ... We get to experience a taste of this now as we grow and God grants faith to us so that we embrace that he has released us from our debt. He's forgiven our sins. He's released us completely from guilt and shame. The bondage to sin and Satan and even death itself. He's released and forgiven all of it. And so now we look forward with great anticipation the day that we will stand before Jesus and he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're in Christ, you know you will hear those words. Not because it's not based on what you've done or what you haven't done, your goodness. It's based on his goodness. 
And so we can rest assured, knowing that he is waiting for us with open arms. And we look forward to the day with great anticipation to enter into his rest, enter into his joy. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Oh, I look forward to that. Thank goodness time does not belong to us. It belongs to God. He has a way better plan than we could ever come up with. So communion, 